Greetings and welcome to Converging Streams, Interfaith Fellowship in Our Modern World. Our program is a production of the Muncie Interfaith Fellowship and the Unitarian Universalist Church of Muncie. Today's topic is Water, Speech, and the Birth of Creation. Please welcome Reverend George Wolfe. Hello, and welcome to Converging Streams. Sacred writings from the great religions of the world often make use of symbolism and metaphor, which greatly add to a scripture's literary power. When symbols found in Hinduism, Buddhism, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam are compared, we find that themes common to these faiths extend well beyond a shared belief in God, code of ethics, and the quest for life beyond the grave. Let us look now at symbols related to the beginning of creation. Hindu, Jewish, and Christian scriptures describe the primordial or source of creation, sometimes called the unmanifest condition of creation, using remarkably similar images. Consider, for example, the following passages from the Rig Veda, which is a Hindu scripture, and the book of Genesis, which comes from the Bible, and the second epistle of Peter. In the Rig Veda, it says, Darkness was covered by darkness in the beginning, with no distinguishing sign, all this was water. Notice how similar the image is as expressed in the book of Genesis, where it says, And darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved over the face of the waters. And in the epistle of Peter from the Christian tradition, it says, By the word of God, heavens existed long ago and an earth formed out of water by means of water. As revealed in these verses, the symbol used in ancient times for the primordial or unmanifest state out of which creation was born is that of water. To poets and philosophers of old, water was an elemental substance, essential to life. It is also formless and accompanies the birth process. As... Before a woman gives birth, her water breaks. In the context of the ocean, the experience of water gives the experience of being without limits. Imagine looking over the ocean from the seashore. It seems to go forever. In the Hindu tradition, there is a set of scriptures called the Upanishads. The Mandaka Upanishad speaks of the universe as being brought out of the infinite ocean of existence. If the earth was formed out of water, then it was believed that at the end of the age all things were destined to return to this formless condition. This process is referred to as dissolution. Dissolution comes from the term dissolve. Imagine dropping a grain of salt which has form into water. It dissolves and becomes formless. It loses its form as it merges with the water. The process of dissolution is addressed by Joseph Campbell in his book, Creative Mythology, The Masks of God, where he writes of the primordial waters in ancient cosmology into which all forms were to dissolve at the end of the cosmic cycle. 
consistent with this cosmology is the dissolution of the earth back into the primordial waters as portrayed in the great flood stories of the classical world. Most of you, I'm sure, are familiar with the flood story in the book of Genesis, that of Noah and the ark. But an earlier rendition, somewhat similar to Genesis' version, is found in the Sumerian epic of Gilgamesh. In addition, a Hindu myth describes Vishnu, the Hindu god of preservation, as assuming the form of a fish to tow a ship, enabling Manu, the father of the new human race, to survive a devastating flood. The ark, or boat, in these flood epics represents the remnant of the old creation that is saved for the purpose of starting the new creation. Much like a seed survives the death of winter in order to bring forth new life the following spring. Now water, of course, is also a cross-cultural symbol for purification. In Judaism, this takes the form of, of a cleansing bath as prescribed by Mosaic law. Hinduism and Christianity attribute significance to the practice of washing, believing that in doing so a person may be cleansed from sin. Hindus bathe in the Ganges River in India for this purpose, while Christians receive the sacrament of baptism. Now, while I was in India, I noticed people bathing in the Ganges River, and I realized, after learning that they were doing so to be cleansed from sin, that this is the way baptism was done in early Christian times. If you remember the story of Jesus being baptized, he walked into the River Jordan, where he was baptized by John the Baptist. Joseph Campbell depicts baptism as an act whereby a person is pulled from the waters to be given a second spiritual birth. This allusion actually is consistent with the metaphor of the primal waters discussed earlier. The primal waters, or source of creation, represent not only the unmanifest value of creation, but also of oneself, since each human being is part of this creation. Now it is through meditation that the mind is led inward to experience its own unmanifest nature at the depths of itself from where thoughts arise after which a person emerges as if a new creation. Hindus describe this meditative state as an experience of inner stillness, heightened awareness, contentment, and non-desire. Christian contemplative Thomas Merton speaks of it as interior prayer, a tranquil, empty, peaceful solitude in which one receives quietly hiddenly and secretly from God, simply by listening and quiet attention. Father Thomas Keating has described prayer as talking to God, but meditation as listening to God. Again, using the analogy of water, a pond which is still reflects its surroundings clearly, while a surface covered with waves presents us with a distorted image. So, too, desire distorts the mind's perception of reality, like the waves blur the reflected image in a pond. But in the meditative state, reality 
is reflected clearly. A branch of Chinese Buddhism known as Taoism uses this water analogy to describe the mind of a sage. Quote, water that is still gives back a clear image of beard and eyebrows. And if water in stillness possesses such clarity, how much more must pure spirit? The sage's mind in stillness is the mirror of heaven and earth. That comes from the complete works of Shuang Tzu. Shuang Tzu was an ancient Taoist philosopher. A similar interpretation can be rendered from Psalm 46.10, which states, Be still and know that I am God. And from the opening verses of the 23rd Psalm, the familiar passage, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me beside still waters. Not wanting, here, is the condition of non-desire. And still waters represent the mind in the state of inner reflection. Thus, it is through the stillness of meditation that the mind is cleansed of desire, or perhaps we should say washed in the waters of the unmanifest. Another theme common to the great religions of the world is that creation was brought forth through divine speech. Swami Nikailananda, an important Hindu commentator, writes, The Lord brings forth the universe with the help of the knowledge of the Vedas. He himself utters the words that express this knowledge. In the book of Genesis from the Bible, chapter 1, God speaks to bring forth creation. For example, in the fourth verse of the first chapter of Genesis, it is stated, And God said, Let there be light. It was through his speech that he began creating the universe. And in the Muslim Quran, we read, God is the originator of the heavens and the earth, and whenever God decrees anything, God says to it, Be, and it is. All these examples show the importance of speech to bring forth creation as described in the ancient worldview. The importance of speech in this context may be rooted in the ancient belief that language has the power to manifest form, that verbal utterance gives an idea, shape, and existence. It may also be related to the concept of omnipotence. Speaking represents minimum action, and the Creator, being all-powerful, needs only to utter His command in order to create the universe. This is asserted most strikingly in the opening verse of the Gospel of John, which reads, In the beginning was the Word. Returning now to the experience of meditation, you will recall my reference to Father Thomas Keating explaining that while prayer is talking to God, meditation is listening to God. The experience of meditation is one where the mind, settled in the, in the condition of non-desire, is in a state of deep listening. It is called deep listening because in this state of awareness, the mind is made receptive to realizations 
or what in the Christian tradition are called epiphanies. These are sudden realizations of truth. To the contemplative, this is the experience of hearing God's word, a word that is known not from written scriptures, but from direct communion with the divine. Thank you for listening to Converging Streams, Interfaith Fellowship in Our Modern World. Our program is a production of the Muncie Interfaith Fellowship with content and financial support from the Unitarian Universalist Church of Muncie and technical support from radio stations WCRD and Work FM. Most importantly, we thank you, our listeners and followers, for your support. To connect with Converging Streams, including listening to our entire catalog of past programs, getting our latest new content, and making your own contribution to this program, visit our website, convergingstreams.org. Converging Streams is produced by Tony Piazza, George Wolf, and Thomas Perchlick. Thank you for listening, and have a pleasant week.